King. We're here for You and nothing else, Father. Lord, what a sweet blessing it is that that we get to come here week after week and be filled with Your Word, be filled with Your Spirit. Thank You, King, for being so faithful. Lord, I pray that You would strip me away, Father, and that Your Word would go out. Because, Father, as we're going to learn, Father, us as humans, we're so fragile, we're so... such a vanity, Father. Our words mean nothing. But, Father, Your Word is everything. You are the King, immortal, eternal, the only wise God. So we do give You honor and glory forever, Father, and we, we come sitting down, Father, quieting our hearts, begging with You. Would You speak to us tonight? Father, we do lift up Austin, our, our sweet brother. God, I pray that You keep him safe. Lord, as he's going through Iraq... Lord, I pray that you keep him safe as he defends us. Father, I pray that you would hold him up with your right hand and that you would encourage him, Lord, around every turn as you open up doors for him to minister to brothers there, Lord, as you open up doors for him to share your truth with his fellow soldiers there. God, I pray that you would empower him. God, and that your spirit would fall fresh upon him, Lord, to, uh, to really anoint him for, for this task that you've given him. And Lord, I also pray for Kent Hoven. God, I pray that you give him the peace that you gave to Peter as he was sitting in prison, Father. Lord, about to die the next day, but sleeping soundly. Father, give give Kent that same peace, Father. And Lord, I pray that you'd free him, that you'd do something mighty, that you'd do something miraculous, Father, that that an appeal would come about, Father, and that, that he would be released. Lord, we give you the glory for tonight. It's your night. You're the king. We're just here to to worship you and to learn from you. Speak to our hearts in your precious son's name. Amen. Amen. Open up with me to Job chapter 9. Job chapter 9. When Josh assigned me this passage, after reading over it, I got... So excited, just because this is really, I mean, after reading over this, this is probably has jumped to my top 10 favorite chapters in the Bible. It's such a sick chapter. We're going to be looking at two things tonight. The first main thing that we're going to be looking at is the sovereignty and the power of God. What an awesome thing to learn about, the greatness of our King. What a sweet thing to talk about, how good He is. And then the second thing we'll be learning about is is our human frailty, our place really in in in, uh, in this relationship that we have with God. You know, I, I think that this message is so important. The reason why I like it so much is the culture that we live in today. We live in a very self-seeking culture where it's all about me. It's all about what I want. It's all about how fast I can get what I need and what I want. You know, when when was the last time that, that someone submitted to, to someone else's needs in the world? Never. It never happens. It's all about us. And I see that leaking through into my life from time to time. Just kind of the, the world seeping in. And it, it's such a problem for us Christians. It's such... It's so not of the Lord. And so I'm excited. I, I was so kicked in the face by this passage and so blessed by it. So let's go ahead and uh, and see what the Lord has to say. Job chapter 8, where we're coming off of, is one of Job's good friends, Bildad. Bildad's coming to Job and he's basically telling him all that's going on in in Job's life and all that the Lord's doing, which is a funny thing anyway. You know, how can we ever presume to know the mind of God? How how can we ever presume to know what he's thinking or or what he's doing or why he's doing it? But he does, he, he tries to explain to Job, but well, you know, this is what's going on, so, you know, you, you're, you're totally off base here, you don't know what you're talking about, this is why all this is happening to you. You know, as, as, we, as we read through Job, we've seen a lot of tragedy happen to Job. He lost his children, he lost all his possessions, all of his livestock, his home, his, he, he's lost pretty much everything at this point. You know, and here come his friends, and they're going to try and explain to him what's going on, and And so Bildad's basic explanation is that 
there was, you know, if since your children got killed, it must have been their sin. They screwed up. You know, the, you, this isn't God just, you know, squashing you like a bug, which sounds good to us. You know, it, it sounds, yeah, definitely, you know. I mean, God, God doesn't do that. He doesn't just, you know, stick his thumb down on us and, and, and try and hurt us. You know, and so... You know, I, I've I've said at times to people, oh well, you know what? That's that's not what's going on here. I've I felt a little like Bildad before, and and really all of what Bildad tried to say in chapter eight is summed up in chapter eight verse twenty. So we'll just go ahead and read that so that we have a little bit of context in chapter nine. Job chapter eight verse twenty. Behold, God will not reject a blameless man, nor take the hand of evildoers. Now this in and of itself is true this is true why it's it's god's nature it's god's character he he doesn't he doesn't side with evildoers and you know he he doesn't just pick on the righteous but job has a very important response to bildad's argument let's read in job chapter 9 verse 1 then job answered and said truly i know that it is so so job's agreeing he's like you're right god doesn't just you know beat down on on righteous people but here's the, here's the clutch. But how can a man be in the right before God? Job agrees. You know what? You're right, Bildad. He doesn't. He doesn't afflict the righteous person. But who is right before God? How can a man be in the right before God? This is so important, family. This is a, this is a huge, important... It's one of the foundational, I guess, principles of, of the church, of our belief is sin. It, it's, it plays such a huge deal in our lives. And we need to be able to understand it. You see, Job is picking up on something here. He's picking up on, the, on, the, on a distinction, I think, between sin and sin. And I know that sounds complicated, but f- for the purposes of tonight, we'll call one sin capital S sin. You know, sin with a capital S and then lowercase sin. So capital sin and lowercase sin. Well, what are these things? Capital S sin is a sinful nature. And then lowercase sin is individual acts of wickedness, I guess is what you could say. You know, like an example of lowercase sin is you lied to your neighbor. That, that's an example of lowercase sin. That's breaking the law, you did something wrong, you made a boo-boo, whatever you want to call it. That, that's lowercase sin. And a man can possibly, theoretically, never, from this point on, commit a lowercase sin. Family, let's just say that that you, from this point on, never committed a sin, another little sin, another uh, injustice. Would you be right before God? Would you be justified? You see, justified, it's, it's a legal term, and it means blameless, basically. It means... Uh, like, you know, if, if someone's found not guilty, you know, that's, that's, they're justified. They, they weren't guilty of the crime. So if you were to never sin from this point on, would you be justified? No. Why? Because we have this capital S sin. This sinful nature, which is really simply just rebellion and, and departure from God's perfection. It, it's basically a, a willingness to rebel or, or to go against God or to be far from God. And this sin is always going to be a part of our lives is always going to be a part of our lives thanks to thanks to adam this sinful nature will always be a part of human life how can a man be in the right before god it's impossible it's impossible even even said of you know paul you know paul talks about himself and what does he say he says according to the law you know he he was listing off who he was before and he said you know according to the law i was blameless he was blameless. Nothing could be said about the man. He, he never, he just didn't break the law. But Paul himself says in Romans chapter 3.10, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none righteous. None of us. Isaiah. Isaiah says in, chap, in chapter 64 verse 6 that even our good deeds, the good things that we do, are like filthy rags before the Lord or soiled garments. You know, it's like if you took um, if you took a, a white shirt, you know, and you you drug it through, you know, a, a thing of blood. 
You know, you can never get blood out. You know, especially that much blood. Like, that shirt's never going to be white again. You know, that that's the picture that's painted here. That's our good deeds before the Lord, our filthy rags. There is none righteous, no, not one. How can a man be in the right before God? How can a man be in the right before God? This is how. Job's predicament was answered in Romans chapter 5, verse 1. This is beautiful. Romans chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We've been justified by faith in Jesus Christ. We no longer have to worry about this predicament that that Job was talking about. That was a very real thing. The problem of sin. Because there is none righteous. No, not one. Our good deeds are like filthy rags. All we like sheep have gone astray. But in Christ there's justification. In Christ we can say, you know what? I am justified. I am blameless. It's a sweet blessing. But family, let's never forget what had to be covered over by the blood of Christ. And that's that capital S sin. That sin nature that we will never, 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 even if a baby was born today and never committed a sin, he is still, he still has the sinful nature. It's inherited. It's passed down. We, we have no option really of it. How can a man be in the right before God? It is impossible except through the blood of Jesus Christ. Verse 3. If one wished to contend with him, one could not answer him once in a thousand times. We have to stop again here. I know we didn't get far. (laughs) If one wished to contend with God, one could not answer him one in a thousand times. I love this because so many times I've been out on the street witnessing. I've talked to people. You know, whether it be, you know, especially in California, you know, or, or anywhere. You talk to someone and, and, and I've heard it said, oh, well, uh, if I died today, I'll tell you what, I'd have a bone to pick with God. What? No way. If, if you even wish to stand up to God and say, hey, man, you didn't, you're guilty. But that time at you're guilty. But with the grandma, you're guilty. One could not answer God one in a thousand times. He's holy. We're not. We have no ground to stand on. It's important for us to get this basis for this message. We have no ground to stand on with God. We have nothing. We have no bargaining chip. We have nothing to bring to the table. Why? Because even the good things that we do, like we said, what? They're filthy rags. We have nothing. We have nothing. If one wished to contend with God, one could not answer Him. One in a thousand times. He is wise in heart, verse 4. Wise in heart and mighty in strength. Who has hardened himself against Him and succeeded? Who? No one. Many have tried. Believe me. We read Pharaoh. He, he hardened his heart against the Lord. After every plague, what happened? He hardened his heart against the Lord. He hardened it. He hardened it. He hardened it. He hardened it. Until it finally came time. And what happened? He hardened it so much that he was just like, forget it. I'm going after him. I'm I'm going to get these Israelites back. You know? And so he chased them down. What happened? He died. (laughs) Moses parted the Red Sea. The Israelites crossed through on dry ground. And what happened to Pharaoh and his chariots? They got swallowed up. Pharaoh, yeah, he tried to harden his heart against the Lord. Many contemporaries today try and harden their heart against the Lord. They try and say, you know what? God doesn't exist. And even if He does, I want nothing to do with Him. I've talked to so many people with that attitude and it breaks my heart. You know, I I think of even a man, Richard Dawkins, you know, who's, who's hardened his heart so fiercely against the Lord. Of all these people, None of them, none of them will succeed. Why? Because every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. It's going to happen. It's going to happen. Richard Dawkins will one day kneel down and and declare that Jesus is Lord. All these people who've gone before us and who have have tried to deny and, and harden their heart against God, what happened? They'll kneel. And they'll say, man... God does exist and Jesus Christ is the Lord of all, the King of Kings. 
And family, that's really, you know, for those who who don't bow that knee here on earth. That's really the essence of hell is these for these people is that forever they will know that they were wrong and never have any hope of reversing it. You see here, if, if I'm wrong and I say something, I can take it back. I can make amends. There's hope. But see, there's no hope. But no, no one will harden their heart against the Lord and succeed. No one ever has, no one ever will. The Lord is sovereign. The Lord is sovereign. Okay? He, he's over everything. There's nothing that can touch Him. Verse 5. He who moves mountains and they know it not. When He overturns them in His anger, who shakes the earth out of its place and its pillars tremble, who commands the sun and it does not rise, who seals up the stars, who alone stretched out the heavens and trampled the waves of the sea, who made the bear and Orion, the Pleiades and the chambers of the south. We'll pause there. It's times when we have tornadoes in Southern California and six inches of hail in Buena Park and when during the summer it snows in Paris and in Beaumont that we start realizing God's still got some power. <laughs> it's times like Hurricane Katrina where everyone goes, act of God. Is it not God who shakes the earth and its pillars tremble? Is it not God who defies all what meteorologists and weather people might ever possibly imagine or think and puts tornadoes in our backyard? Who brings down hail and snow in the middle of summer? This is our God. Nothing can stop Him. Who is it? Is it, is it Mother Nature? No. No way. No way. This is our God. This is our God. And so every time that something like this happens... Every time that we see something in nature, our response should be to turn and give Him glory. This passage, you know, it talks about who, who alone stretched out the heavens. Who alone created the bear and Orion. You know, speaking of the constellations. You know, the, the bear, it's, um, what's, the, what's the name of the constellation as we know? It's uh, Ursa Major. You know, the, the Big Dipper, right? Well, that's only a part of a bigger constellation and it looks just like a bear. I mean, you could go out and find the Big Dipper and you can see it. It looks like a bear. It's pretty crazy. You know, or, or Orion. We know Orion's belt, right? Well, that's part of a, a bigger constellation known as Orion. It's a dude that looks like a soldier. I mean, it's pretty rad. Or a hunter, I think, actually. It's a hunter. Orion's a hunter. But anyway, not the point. But who did this? Was it Mother Nature? Was it all this spinning that happened and then an explosion and then defied all odds and created a bear? and a man in the stars. Or we look at things in nature like Niagara Falls or the Grand Canyon. You know, I, I, I've, ha I've had the sweet pleasure of going to Yellowstone. I went to Yellowstone this past summer with my, with my grandparents and I got to go all around Yellowstone. And I mean, when you hear someone talk about God's country, that's what they're talking about. I mean, I saw some of the most beautiful things I'd ever seen. Huge canyons, gorges, hewed out by tiny, tiny, tiny creeks. You know, or, or massive waterfalls coming down. The most beautiful scenes I've ever seen in my life. When we see these things, what do we say? Mother Nature at its best. No. That's our King. Every single intimate detail of this creation is His masterpiece. Every day when we walk outside, we should give glory. Why? Because He painted the sky. Whenever we walk around, we, we, you know, I challenge you, go on a walk and start looking at nature. Start looking at trees. Go up and check out a tree. They're pretty stinking cool how they work. Like you, you look at a tree and how it's built and you, you know, the bark and you look at another tree and no tree is ever exactly the same. A snowflake. Something so tiny as a snowflake. No snowflake ever the same. Don't you think that God takes every little detail in, in painting that little snowflake and letting it rain down so that we get to see a new one every time? Our God is powerful and sovereign. Who? Who's done these things? Is it nature? No. Was it coincidence? Absolutely not. 
That's foolish. Who's going to really believe that, that it would happen? It would be more likely for a, a tornado to fly through a junkyard and create a 747 than for an explosion to create this ridiculously detailed and intricate universe that we have. Who's done these things? Only God. And how did He do them? Another display of His power. How did He create these things? Did He go to the Celestial Home Depot and say, alright, so uh, I think I want to build like a world and uh, I'm thinking maybe like a universe to surround it or something, so what do I need for that? No way! He created it out of nothing. Nothing! God spoke and everything that we see came into existence. Did he like get his hammer and his wood and like build an earth? No. No. He created it out of nothing. No materials, no tools. He spoke and it existed. You know, some scientists came up to God. It's a true story. And um, they were talking to him and they said, God, we don't like the way that you did things around here. We don't like how this whole world set up, all this universe. Why did you create mosquitoes? Mosquitoes are the worst creation ever. You did really bad with that. You know, and what was with the giraffe? Did you just like, you know, make a horse and want it to be different? And so you pulled its neck like, God, you really messed up a lot of things. And so God kind of smiled and looked at him and, and said, all right, we'll talk. But first you have to create something. And so the scientists kind of looked at each other and laughed and they walked away. And they came back with, um, with some of their tools, a couple of computers and, uh, you know, some, some metal rigging. And they were going to build like this robot, right? And so God took all their stuff away and said, Mm-mm, I created that. We've never seen anything created out of nothing. We can't do it. It's impossible. Like the, our minds can't even fathom something like that. Can you imagine me holding out my hand and saying latte and it appear like no that, that we've never seen that happen even a tree what it comes from a seed a chicken what well, comes from an egg we see nothing come out of nothing <laughs> but god did that he's powerful god is all powerful i fear that sometimes family we forget this the awesomeness and the power of our God. Who does great things, verse 10, beyond searching out, and marvelous things beyond number. Behold, He passes me by, and I... Uh, behold, He passes me by, and I see Him not. He moves on, and I do not perceive Him. Behold, He snatches away. Who can turn Him back? Who will say to Him, What are you doing? Oh, who would dare say to God, hey, 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 wait, 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 what are you doing? I do not like the way that you created, I don't like the way that that sunset looks. What do you think you're doing right now? I'm at the beach, God. This is supposed to be sunny. What are you doing here? All right? You just need to stop it right now. God, I don't like what you're doing in my life. What are you doing? What do you think you're doing, God? You're screwing everything up for me. I had this plan and that plan. What do you think you're doing? Do we not do this sometimes, family? And I'm not speaking in a way of of questioning God's plan, trusting in Him. Yes, we need that, you know, definitely. You know, there, there's times where it's like, oh, Father, what are you doing? You know, I, I really want to know. I want to know so that I can be at peace. I'm not talking about that, but questioning God. Questioning God is a very dangerous thing. Why? Because like we said, we have no ground to stand on. talks about it in Romans chapter 9. Romans chapter 9 in verse 20 says, But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to, the, say to its molder? Or say to its potter? No, the molder, my bad. <laughs> Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of it the same... Uh, to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show His wrath and to make known His power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of His glory for the vessels of mercy which He has prepared beforehand for glory? 
It's like this. My best friend Josh here, he did pottery in high school. And uh, I used to laugh at him. He's good now. He's really good. And, but uh, can you imagine if, like, he created a uh, he created a vase and the vase started, like, freaking out. Like, why are you making me like this? I should be way more tapered and way taller. What do you think you're doing? Like, that would be, it would be ridiculous. A vase would never, like, freak out at the at the potter never or you know let's say you you go home tonight and you make yourself a sandwich is the sandwich going to start freaking out at you like i need more mayonnaise there's not enough mayo on me right now you need to you need to stop it and put more mayo right now no it, it doesn't work that way why because well we're the creator of that and we have every right over it to do what we want you know, like if, if I created right now a, a pot out of clay and smashed it on the ground, that's my right. Why? Because I created it. It's mine. It's not yours. You, you, can't get, you can't tell me what to do with it, and it can't tell me what to do with it. Why? I created it. This is the same way with us and God. So often in my life I've questioned God as if I had some room to stand, as if... I meant something of significance that I could say to God that He should do something a different way, a better way. Like I knew something special He didn't. God is sovereign. God is sovereign. He gets to choose. Why? He's God. He created it all. Everything that we see, and we we just learn, well, not learn, hopefully, but we were just reminded that He spoke everything into existence. He created it. It's His. Who are we to question Him? Is what Job's saying. This is so true and we need to remember this. And family, I'd even go so far as to say that, that if, if you run into someone, a Christian who's doing this, who's saying, oh, well, you know, God, God's just screwing everything up. You, in love, you rebuke them. Because we have no place to do that. That's not our place. You know, it would be... Uh, it, this isn't a good enough example because it doesn't fully explain you know, what's going on here, but it would be like me disciplining Robert's children. Like, I have no place to discipline Robert's children. You know, like, it's, it's just no place. How much more do we not have a place to tell God how to run the ship? We have no ground. We have no ground to stand on. We have no ground to come to God and say, you're screwing things up. You shouldn't be doing it that way. You, you, you're doing everything wrong here. Let me come in and I'll fix everything for you. It's okay. We have no ground to stand on. We have no reason or room to do this. Let's move on. Behold, he passes me, and I see him not. He moves on, but I do not perceive him. Behold, he snatches away. Who can turn him back? Who will say to him, what are you doing? Verse 13, God will not turn back his anger. Beneath him bowed the helpers of Rahab. How can I answer him, choosing my words with him? Though I am in the right, I cannot answer him. I must appeal for mercy to my accuser or judge, as it's better translated. Oh man, how, Job's saying, how am I supposed to come up and say anything to the God of the people of Israel? You know, what it's talking about there is, you know, the, that it's the same God who, who the helpers of Israel, or the helpers of Rahab bowed to. Who was Rahab? Well, she was the, she was the prostitute uh, that we read about who, you know, when the people of Israel, they're coming up to Jericho. You know what happened? You know she was like, "Oh well, uh, I'll I'll spare you from the guards if you'll spare my life. I'll hide you if you if you spare my life." She said that to the spies. So the spies agreed, and they went out. And what happened? We know marched around the wall. Bam, walls go down by the mighty hand of God, and the people and the city of Jericho is is taken by the people of Israel. Rahab spared. But the point in saying this is this, the people, the people, Rahab's helpers, the, who they bowed to, that's who we're talking about here. It's a roundabout way of Job bringing up, look at all that God has done. He brought down 
probably the greatest city at the time without worrying about it, without even you know taking a breath. He parted the Red Sea and took the people out of the mightiest kingdom at its time, Egypt. He took he took some some slaves out. He brought plagues down from heaven. That same God that's done all these things, that's who we're talking about here. That's who we're talking about here. Job's establishing this and he's saying, are you kidding me? This, this God that we're talking about, let's make sure that we're talking about the same, the same God here. This God, I, I can't turn back his anger. How can I answer him? Choosing my words with him. You know, I'm a really good schmoozer, I guess. You know, like, I, I'm just really, like, I don't know, like, I, I, I'm sweet to people, you know, and I, I, I don't want to say, it's not, mean, it's not manipulative, because I really am genuinely trying to be nice to people. But I, I can schmooze, I can, you know, oh, well, uh, you know, I, I can choose my words wisely, you know, and, and more often than not, you know, maybe get something a little bit more than the guy who's a jerk. You know, this is especially true, you know, at, at like, at Starbucks, I go there a lot. You know, and I, I, I definitely genuinely take an interest in, in, the, in my baristas at Starbucks because I'm there every morning. I know them all by name. They all know me. We talk about what's going on in their lives. But, you know, it, it starts out being just being kind to people, being sweet to people. And what happens the first time, you know, I, I went in there, you know, I was just really nice to the woman. She was having a real hard time. You know, this the guy in front of me was giving her a real, real, real hard time. Like he kind of cut in front of me and was like, "Oh, I, you you messed up my drink order," and was flipping out at her. And um, you know, she, so she was trying to fix that, and she said to me, "Sorry." And I said, "You know what? You take all the time you need. You take all the time you need. I'm in no hurry. I was in a hurry, but that's not the point. You know, you take all the time that you need. It's all right." And she was just so calm by that, and she was like. Uh, um, let me give you an extra shot on me. And I was like, sweet, yeah, right on. I, I love coffee. But anyway, you know, like we, we can do that with people, right? We can choose our words. You know, we can, we can schmooze a little bit. We can get a little bit extra by being kind and choosing what we say. You know, it's, it, it's not what you say, it's how you say it, right? That's, that's what our parents always tell us. Usually it's the other way around, though. Like, I, I didn't say anything bad. It's not what you say, it's how you say it. You know, and we can do that with people, but Job's saying, Mm-mm, not with God. What, what can I, what am I supposed to say to him to choose my words wisely? I have no ground to even speak to him. There's nothing that I could say. It, there, there's nothing that, that would ever turn back his anger. I can't answer him one in a thousand times. I have no ground to stand before God. How am I supposed to choose my words wisely? Though I am in the right, I cannot answer him. I must appeal for mercy to my judge. If I summoned him, verse 16, and he answered me, I would not believe that he was listening to my voice, for he crushes me with a tempest and multiplies my wounds without cause. He will not let me get my breath, but fills me with bitterness. Let's pause right there real quick. We have an interesting little turn of events. We have Job in the past, what, about... 15 verses or so spitting the sickest truth doctrine ever about God's sovereignty and his power and then what happens he turns to himself but at first it's poor me poor me you see for us retrospect we know what's going on in the story God says hey look you know Satan go try and go try and test him go try and tempt him he's not going to turn away from me and you know he's I'm going to bless him richly afterward. That's what happened with Job. He got back everything, you know, times, th- well, it was a few different things that, that he got multiplied back, but mostly times threefold, you know, three times back of everything. And like crazy, crazy. And so Job, though, he doesn't realize. He's in the heat of the moment. And he starts to get a little bit poor me. He starts to pull out the violin and start, you know, playing a few notes. We got a pity party going on. He says, "If I summon him and he answered me, I wouldn't believe that it was that he was even listening to my voice. For he crushes me with a tempest and multiplies my wounds without cause. He will not let me get my breath, but fills me with bitterness." Job, 
Job, Job, Job. He's getting, he's just starting to pout. <laughs> well, even if God, even if I cried out to him and he did answer me, I wouldn't even believe it was him because he's being so mean to me right now. Do we do that, family? When trial comes down, it's like, poor me. God's just like, meaning. We do that. We do that. We get bummed out and we start throwing a pity party for ourselves. Just like Job is here. And it's, it's such a bummer because it was like, yeah, Job, go, man, go, man, go. And you lost it. Here comes the pity party. Here's the thing, guys. Remember, remember God's comfort to the people of Israel as they were banished out of their land. They're taken into exile. They're taken out of, uh, of Israel and they're put in Babylon. What does God say in Jeremiah 29? He says, first, know this. I know what's going on because I put you there. I put you there. This, this exile that you're in, this problem, this you being pulled out of your home and put into a foreign land, I put you there. But this is the promise that he makes to them. As he says in Jeremiah 29.11, I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for good and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. When we're in the middle of the trial, when we're in the middle of the trouble, when it feels like everything around us is caving in, everyone has deserted us, even our friends are almost annoying us because they're just they're they're talking about what they don't even know everything's coming down we've lost children when everything bad is happening remember god knows what's going on don't throw a pity party don't say poor me don't be eeyore don't be job remember that god has a plan and remember his promise to you that all things work out together for the good for those who love God and who are called according to His purpose. That's a promise for you. That's for you to cash in on, family. Remember these things. It's important. Sorry, I'm, I've, I've got a really bad sore throat. and I definitely did like 12 songs of karaoke this past weekend, so like my throat's really killing me right now. But anyway, no, remember what's going on. That, that the Lord knows what's going on, that He cares about you. He hasn't forgotten. This verse, Jeremiah 29, 11, was given to Pastor John Corson by Chuck Smith after his daughter died. And actually, it was a year later when his wife died on the exact same day. You see, she was driving over to the to the cemetery, and what happened is she, you know, she crashed into the into the gate of the cemetery and she died. And so Chuck Smith says to to Pastor John, Pastor John, know this that the Lord has a plan. He knows what's going on, and that what's going on in your life, it, it's a plan to to bring you benefit, not to harm you, not to hurt you. And so as Josh has stood up here so many times, because I don't know John, but Josh does, <laughs> as he stood up here so many times and said, Pastor John's the most joyful man he's ever met in his life, having lost a, a wife and a daughter. Why? Because he understands what Job really kind of missed out on. What we so often miss out on, and that is that God's plan for us is not to squash us like bugs He's not just out to get us. This plan that he, have for, that he has for us, it's to give us a future and a hope. Not to bring us harm. We must remember this in times of trouble. We have to. Why? Because otherwise, we're just going to be more mopey Eeyores. Walking around, feeling sorry for ourselves. And I promise when you're feeling sorry for yourself, you're forgetting about loving God and loving others. Because all you're thinking about is yourself. Let's continue on. Verse 19. If it is a contest of strength, behold, he is mighty. If it's a matter of justice, who can summon him? 
It's like you know, if if God's just looking for a for an arm wrestle or something like that, he won. <laughs> you know, if he's trying to like play like a like you know debate with me or something like that, he won. I I understand. It's over. It was over from the start. Like if it's a contest of strength, I lose. I give. I I will never be as strong as God. You see, he moves out of pity party mode for a minute and comes back to realize not only the power and sovereignty of God, but also his frailty as a man, his real place in the scheme of things. Verse 20. Though I am in the right, my own mouth would condemn me. Though I am blameless, he would prove me perverse. It's an important point relating back to our sinfulness. Even if I tried to tell God that I was blameless, my mouth, it, it would prove me wrong. Even though, you know, even if I if I stood, you know, he, he says, though I am blameless, you know, it, to the world's eyes, you know, blameless, you know, not not uh, committing, you know, these, these lowercase sins that we were talking about. Though I'm blameless, he'll prove me perverse, perverse. See, here's the thing, guys with sin is that while when every to everyone else things may look great God sees what's going on in the heart and all the secret things that we've ever thought the things that we've done or, or thought in, in secret in the darkness will be shouted from the rooftops why? because he knows it all he knows what's going on he knows he understands and so even though to the world we may look like we got it all together. Let's never become prideful. Because God knows what goes on in the heart. God knows what's going on. Even though you, you may be blameless. Hey, if you're blameless, if you're without sin, prove it. But if you're without sin, God will still prove you perverse. Not just like, oh yeah, well you got this one little thing, everything else you're doing right, but one little slip. No, perverse. Crazy. Crazy thought. Though I am blameless, he would prove me perverse. I am blameless. I regard not myself. I loathe my life. Oh, dang it. Here we go back into pity party mode. I loathe my life. It is all one. Therefore I say, he destroys both the blameless and the wicked. When disaster brings sudden death, he mocks at the calamity of the innocent. The earth is given into the hand of the wicked. He covers the faces of its judges. If it is not he, then who is it? Pity party mode. We got some, what I see to be very unsound doctrine. Him just kind of wailing. When disaster brings sudden death, he mocks at the calamity of the innocent, is what Job says in verse 23. We've learned something very important, and uh, and that's this: is that God's powerful and sovereign; He can do anything. Yes, I, I agree; it's true. He does; He is, or allows Himself to be bound by His nature. What's His nature? Well, He's just; He's loving. These are true; these are very true. And God does bind Himself to these things. He does operate only within his nature. But let's never forget, family, that God is still God. God is still God. He's still all sovereign and still would be completely in the right to squash me where I stand. It's his divine prerogative. He's God. He's the king. That's it. I mean, there, there's nothing that you're going to say. You know, we, we've learned this. And, and so applying that to this, though, Job, see, he, he takes it a step too far. Now, he goes from saying that, that God's sovereign and, and he can do whatever he wants, and that's true, and he's powerful to do everything, but God does not mock at the calamity of the innocent. We see time and time again throughout all of David's Psalms, you know, David crying out to God, God, don't bring disaster upon me, and don't you know, forget about me. But what does God do every time? 
he comes to the rescue, he saves David. We read in pretty much the next psalm or, or a couple after that, David rejoicing and saying, you don't do this. Oh, you, you don't leave me rotting. You don't delight when the righteous are, 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 are crushed. You don't mock at the calamity of the innocent. He doesn't. He doesn't. Job takes it a little bit too far. See, that's the problem, guys, when we, when we get into pity party mode, is we start forgetting who God really is. We start losing sight, losing track of the true God in our relationship to Him. What He's done for us, His grace that we talked about at the beginning of the study. That He would justify us. We forget about these things when we get in pity party mode. We forget about who God really is. So, let's remember that, yeah, definitely, God can do anything. Who can know the mind of God? Who can be His counselor? It talks about it in, in Isaiah chapter 55, that His my ways are above your ways and my thoughts are above your thoughts. Even as far as the heavens are above the earth. Now, the, the heavens, that's talking about you know everything from the ground up we haven't seen the end of the universe we haven't seen it as far as where I'm standing now is to the end of the universe his thoughts and ways are that far above our thoughts and ways we'll never see the end of how distant they are we can't know the mind of God and so no we, we can't we can't question him you know and we 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 can't say you can't do that because, well, he can. But we can say this. God doesn't. God doesn't just put his thumb down on us and, and try and hurt us. God doesn't mock at the calamity of the innocent. God doesn't take delight in evil. God does not tempt us. We can say these things. We can say these things. Why? Because He doesn't. But let's never say, let's never say that He can't. Moving on, verse 25, we'll look at, we'll look at our last section. We'll see, we've dealt a lot with God's sovereignty and His power. Now let's, in this last little bit here, really put, really humble ourselves and really look at ourselves in perspective. My days are swifter than a runner. They flee away. They see no good. They go by like skiffs of a reed, like an eagle swooping on the prey. Meeny, meeny, tekelu, farsen. You know, is what the handwriting on the wall was. It's that your days have been numbered. Your time's coming up. It's over. This is true for all of us. Every breath is counted by God. Every day from now on, He knows in your life. He knows how many minutes you have left, how many seconds, how many moments, how many twinklings of an eye you have left. How long are we here? Moses says, what, 70, 80 years at most? It's pretty true. I mean, modern medicine, you start to live a little bit longer. But how long are you here for? And that's at most. I've known people who've died my age and younger than me. You know, our, our days are swifter than a runner. They flee away. Why then do we, this drop in the bucket, this vapor, you know, like have you ever seen someone smoking? Um, you know, they, they'll, they'll smoke and just the next time you see it, watch. Um, you know, the, the smoke from, from the cigarette, it just disappears into nothing. It's a vapor. We're, we're like that. We're a vapor. We're a drop in the bucket. We're, we're, we have no time here compared to eternity. We, we need to remember this. We, we need to remember our mortality. Because today, even in, in bits of the church, we're talking about humans being immortal. This isn't true. This isn't true. We are. We're mortal. Our, we're, our days are numbered. We need to remember this, especially when dealing with God. Because His days aren't numbered. 
He's the conquering king and he's going to rule forever and ever. Despite us, he will rule forever and ever. Our days are numbered. Verse 27. If I say, I will forget my complaint, I will put off my sad face and be of good cheer, I become afraid of all my suffering, for I know that you will not hold me innocent. Hmm. I shall be condemned. Why then do I labor in vain? If I wash myself with snow and cleanse my hands with lye, yet you will plunge me into a pit and all my clothes will abhor me. Job says, look, even if I can say, I'm going to forget about life and I'm just going to put on a happy face and I'm going to be happy from now on. Here we go. He says, even if I try and do that, all the worry of my pleasure is, go- or all the worry, pardon me, of my suffering is going to come down on me. I think of a very short period of time in my life, which I'm so blessed that it was a short period, where I was really hurting inside, and so I turned to, you know, going out in the party scene and you know drinking and things like that, thinking that well maybe this will, this will be the smile on my face. But it doesn't fill. All it leaves you with is is the worry of suffering. You see, if you try and put on a happy face all the time, you know, even if you forget about the bills that you have to pay and you start putting on a smiley face, suddenly you're worried about what might take the smiley face away. And so you're freaking out and you're paranoid all the time and all of a sudden, uh-oh, there goes happy. You're paranoid again. It doesn't even last for a moment. That's, that's what Job's saying here. Even if I try... Even if I try and forget, you know, my, my, my problems and try and fill myself with fake happiness, it won't last, it won't work. We have to remember that. Because so often, even as Christians, we try and wear a mask and pretend like everything's alright when it when it definitely is not. It's not gonna last. You shouldn't even try. When life comes down hard, and it will. Don't just put on a smiley face and come to church. Oh, God bless you. How are you doing? I am so great. Yeah. When you're not, don't do it. Don't do it. Why? It's only going to bring you more of a bummer, more of a downer. Masks suck because you have to keep worrying about who might see past it. So then not only do you have the worry of life, but you have the worry of who's going to rip off the mask. It's like perpetuating the problem. You just have more and more worry. We have to remember this. We have to remember this is important. Verse 29. I shall be condemned. Why then do I labor in vain? If I wash myself like snow and cleanse my hands with a lie, yet you will plunge me into a pit and my own clothes will abhor me. There's people in this world that will try and say, me and God have an understanding. And they'll go out and they'll say, I'm a good person. I helped 10 old ladies across the street today. I went to Africa and dug 300 wells for free. All on my own dime. I, uh, I went out and fed... 10 homeless people just just in the past 20 minutes. I'm uh I'm doing it all. I'm doing all the good stuff right now. Even those people that they're trying to wash themselves with snow it won't work. Or they go really extreme and they'll they're like I just, you know, I I don't try and make up for all my sin. I just don't sin. I go and I live in um uh, like in this room and there's only two other people that live with me and we never speak to each other because we're afraid to sin. And um, all we do is we sit and we hand copy parts of the Bible all the time. That's all we do. I don't sin. Even if you do that, it doesn't work. Job talks about washing his hands with a lie. Lie is like, it's sort of like acid. It's actually a base, so it's the opposite of an acid, but it does the same thing. And he's saying, even if I wash my hands with acid, 
If I, if I, you know, like the, you know, the the pool acid, hydrochloric acid eats through everything but plastic. How cool is that? Um, you know, if you try and wash your hands with that, what's it going to do? It's going to take all the skin off your hands. Even if you try and do that to get the the dirt off your hands, Job's saying that that won't even work. I can't even wash my hands with with lye. I'll still be filthy. I'll still be dirty. You know, God says you can wash yourself with soap all you want. Your iniquity is still before me. We have to understand this. Because along with the happy smiley face comes forgetting what we came from. Comes forgetting our sin nature. Comes forgetting who we are. We forget that we sin, we screw up. We start doing this I'm so holy business. I'm so righteous, look at me. We can't do this. We're nothing, we're frail. This is why I got so excited after I read Job 9 to come up and teach because I realized that, you know, I was bummed out. I was like, dang it, I don't get to hear from Josh and and this and that. And it was like, but wait a minute, who's Josh? Who's Josh Thompson? Snap. He's nobody. Who am I? I'm nobody. I'm in good company. You see, I, I, it's we don't have to worry about that. Why? Because standing up here and and teaching doesn't make me anything special. I love the phrase. I live by it. And uh, you know, my my leaders at, at at Woodcrest Woodcrest Christian High School. Um, this is kind of what I've you know as I've, I've I've raised up some people. This is kind of what I've raised them up by. Is that leaders are only leaders because they're the biggest losers. And teachers are only teachers because if they weren't teaching, they'd never be in the Word. And shepherds are only shepherds because if they didn't have a flock to be anxious and worried about, they'd never be praying. I got this from Josh, who got it from John Corson. Surprise, surprise. But it's true. We're nothing. And when you see the pastor in the pulpit, he's nothing. This is a huge thing. We need, to, we need to understand this perspective, not only in our own lives and humbling us, but especially in dealing with pastors. Because we put pastors in a really bad situation when they sin. Because we make pastors feel like they can never do anything wrong ever because they're a pastor. We set pastors up for failure. We set them up for failure because we look at them as if they are perfect when they're human. When they're only a leader because they're the biggest loser. Because God said, you're one of my special boys and you need a little bit of special attention. If I don't do this for you, you're going to be really screwing up. So I need to give you a little bit extra responsibility to keep you busy. And we put these pastors on a pedestal. And so what happens when they screw up? Oh, it's a big fall. We need to understand that all we like sheep have gone astray. There's none righteous, no, not one. I don't care who you are, whether you're Billy Graham or, you know, I don't know, me. (laughs) We've all sinned. We all do sin. One of my favorite quotes is Martin Luther. He said, be a sinner and sin greatly, but even more greatly have love and faith in Christ Jesus. And what he meant in saying this is this, understand you're going to sin. It's going to be a part of your life forever. You can't get away from it. Be a sinner and sin greatly, but even more greatly have love and faith in Christ Jesus. I believe that that's the secret. Is understand who we are as humans, that we are going to sin, we are going to screw up, because I promise you when you have that attitude, people aren't going to let you down as much anymore. You're not going to let yourself down as much anymore. Because you get this pious attitude all of a sudden, like, I've conquered this sin, it's over, it's behind me, and then what happens? You fall right into the mud pit. And it's like, oh, you get so depressed, right? If you'd understand that you're a sinner and you're going to sin, it wouldn't be such a big deal. You'd be able to get up and keep walking. You wouldn't be throwing a pity party. We need to understand the weight of our sin. We need to understand that we'll always affect us. We need to understand that even if we wash our hands with a lie, we'll still be dirty. Don't put yourself or other people on a pedestal. They're still going to sin. It's going to happen. Verse 32. For he is not a man 
as I am, that I might answer him. That we should go, come to trial together. There is no arbiter between us who may lay his hand on us both. Let him take his rod away from me and let not dread of him terrify me. Then I would speak without fear of him for I am not so in myself. Job comes to a real great conclusion here. A real great ending point. Jason Martin's phone's ringing. But anyway, um, Job comes to a real great conclusion here, and that's this. He kind of wraps it all up and says, there's no one that can come between me and God. There's no arbiter. There's no judge. There's no one that can come and say, okay, well, let's, let's reason together. We can't take God on Judge Judy or Judge Hatchet or whatever all those other judges are. We can't do it. But yet again, for us family, there is one mediator between God and man, and that's the man Christ Jesus. We don't have to worry about Job's worry anymore. It's true that he's sovereign, and he's the king, he's the boss. There's no talking back to the boss. And what the boss says goes. But the great thing is, is that when the boss stands up, you have a Jesus that stands up too stands up for us and he says he mediates for us what a sweet blessing what a sweet blessing that is but here's the thing that, that Job realizes and we must realize this too even though yes we are living in grace and God does show unmerited grace to us we don't deserve it but he shows it to us anyway but, God, but Job realizes something and we have to realize this too is that there's no one that can go to God and try and reason things out. It takes God showing grace. He says, let him remove his rod from me. Show mercy is what he's talking about. Have compassion. You see, here's the thing. There's no Superman coming in to take this bullet for you. Well, I mean, Christ did. But I mean, as a man, you know, there's there's nothing that's... there. Uh, between just us and God, there's nothing that, that can go between us except for God choosing to show grace and mercy on us, which He did in Christ Jesus. So we need to understand, family, our frailty, that we have no position to come and question God. Yes, we do have the blessing of coming boldly into the throne room. We come boldly into the throne room, not like with Esther. You remember a few studies ago, when she came into the throne room, she was worried about it. You know why? Because if she came in un uninvited, she could get killed. But we can come boldly into the throne room on the blood of Jesus. But still, family, we have no place to, to, to bring charges against God. Why? Because we have nothing to say. What are you going to say to God? God, you're, you're guilty. But God, you did this... I'm God. We need to understand God's sovereignty. We need to understand God's power and we need to always remember how awesome and glorious He is. It's such a beautiful thing, His power. And family, we also need to understand our place. Let's not be Christian hedonists. Let's not be Christians who, have, who go out and seek our own pleasure and want nothing to do with God and, and say, oh, well, yeah, you know what, God, uh, you're doing this wrong. This is what you need to be doing. You know, it's all about me here. Let's remember, number one, that God's sovereign. It's all about Him. He's the King. Just like that song we sing, you're the King and we bow to you. You're the King, the one I'll always want, run to. You're the King. There is no one like you. Your Majesty, have your way with me. This is the attitude that we must have. Why? Because He's sovereign. He's the King. That's it. Bottom line. It's done. It's over. He's the King. We need to understand that. And then we get the added benefit afterwards of yes, 
being His Son. Just like in that last song we sang. The only time I ever saw God ram was when He ran to me. He wrapped His arms around me and lifted up my face and said, Son, I'm so glad that you're home. Quick, throw a robe around Him and put the Put the ring on his finger. He's part of the family. He, one of my sons can't be dressed like this. Quick, kill the fattest calf that we have. We're going to have a party. My son's come back. Or daughter. <laughs> yes, we do get that. But let's never forget God's sovereignty. We need to find a good balance between these things. And the reason why I talk so harshly about understanding God's sovereignty is this. We've gone too far to the left. I feel as a family, as a, as a church, not only here, but everywhere, especially in the United States, that we've gone too far in saying that, you know, oh yeah, you know, God, whatever. We've begun to think that we can question God, but we must remember His sovereignty, we must remember our place, and then we remember the grace that He's shown us. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for speaking to us. God, for bringing your word. Lord, I know that that your word, Lord, it doesn't return to you void without first accomplishing its purpose. Just like the rain doesn't return back to the heavens before it waters the plants. God, I pray that your word would water our hearts. That we would remain in you. God, that we would remember your sovereignty and we would remember where we stand, Father. That we have no ground to stand on. God, that we would always be at our knees, humbled before you. Because, of Father, then and only then will you lift us up. God, be with us as we go. Remind us of your glory always. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Be blessed and filled. And uh, may the King richly shine his face upon you and and bless you. May the, the Lord of Lords lift his face up to you and give you peace. I love you guys. See you next week.